From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, global fintech investment hits 98 billion in H1. Feedzai acquires world's most advanced biometric platform to create the world's largest financial intelligence network. And would you stay on hold to HSBC for seven hours? All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you something about what we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Blockchain Insider, our podcast dedicated to all things crypto, is back by popular demand. Join me, Simon Taylor, alongside Visa's head of crypto, Kai Sheffield, as we're joined every other week by special guests to discuss their take on the hottest crypto news. We'll also be diving into DeFi, stablecoins, NFTs, and a whole lot more. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios, which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Welcome to episode 554 of Fintech Insider. My name is Adam Davis and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague and co-host, Mr. David Breer. How are you doing, David? Yeah, I'm doing super good. I mean, I was just teasing you a second ago. I'm just, I'm not on point today, so I'm just here for the lols, basically. So, like, uh, I think this is, uh, this is going to, going to be a lot of good, good fun, anyway. Is, but, it, uh, is that why you've cracked open a beer? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, just ease through the next hour, everybody. It's going to be, it's going to be a good one. But, uh, but it's been a, a busy, uh, a busy week in 11FS. Uh, it's been, uh, it's been fun. And actually, there's, um, there's a lot more people in the office now as well. Like, it feels like uh, the world's coming back to life again, which is uh, really nice to see. Yeah, I'm in isolation at the moment, but I'm looking. You're actually in the podcast room. You're like in our podcast room right now. Uh, there's I know. Like a purple light behind you. Like, looks awesome. Um, I'm very. I mean, uh, apart from the fact, apart from the fact, I'm in here on my own, which is a little <laughs> bit sad. But uh, but hopefully, when you get out of isolation, mate, you'll have to uh, jump jump in. Yeah, I'm back for next week. Um, we are not alone. Uh, we are joined remotely by some awesome guests. Uh, making a very welcome return, we have Natasha Jones, who's an early stage investor at Octopus Ventures. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Natasha, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's a pleasure. And alongside Natasha, we have Sophie Winwood, who's an investor at Anthemis. How are you doing, Sophie? Yeah, good, good. I'm actually, I, I was saying to Natasha, I, I miss the days of being in the podcast studio, having a pint um, and, and pretending like we're all sitting in the pub discussing our favorite topic, which is fintech. I was going to say that's pretty much how the podcast started. So, like, pretty much that's 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 where we went to. So, uh, it won't be long. We'll all be back together, won't I we? Know, hopefully. Yeah. Where are you dialing in from? I'm currently in Helsinki, in Finland. Um, so I've come to just hang out here for a couple of months, um, get to know the kind of Nordic e- ecosystem a little bit better, and just get out of London, really. Yeah. FinTech in Finland, it's got a bit of a ring to it, <laughs> right? Fintech. Yeah. Fintech. <laughs> you know, I think we did a, a Fintech Insider Live called Fintech in Finland at one point. Actually, it was re- I vaguely remember me and Sarah Kachansky sitting around what looked like a, a faux fireplace type thing that. and doing it. It was, all quite, it was all quite surreal, but it was a, it was a lot of good fun. I have you, to got, say. you guys weren't in, this is before my time, you guys weren't in Finland though, right? 
No, it no. was Finland. Oh, it was we, in Finland. We were actually oh, right. in Finland. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, it was bloody freezing outside. <laughs> so, uh, Sophie, if you you know everybody complains about London, but Helsinki's cold, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting out of here before it, it even remotely becomes winter. So, yeah. But there, I mean, there's in, there is an interesting fintech scene, though, right? Like, so if there's any uh, Helsinki fintechs listening who want to gr- grab Sophie and hang out, then uh, do get in touch. Yeah, please do. Um, last but not least, but making his fintech insider debut, we have Andy Renshaw, who's the VP of Payment Solutions and Strategy at Feedzai. Um, a massive week for you guys, uh, which we'll be diving into shortly. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, how are you doing, Andrew? Doing great. Uh, I've made it into the London office, and uh, I think other than regressing my drink choice of, of water, given the conversation today, I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. <laughs> Excellent. Good I'm stuff. Under-indexed on the drink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, cool. Uh, let's dive straight into it, because there's uh, there's quite a lot to cover. Um, so the first news story we're going to cover is uh, that global fintech investment has rebounded uh, to hit $98 billion in H1. Um, so this was carried on Finextra, again, all over social. Um, so a little bit about it. Global inf- uh, investment in fintech has come back, obviously, strongly in the first half of 2021, hitting $98 billion with a record number of deals. Funding across VC and PE for H1 2021 was up uh, $12 billion from $87 billion in the same period uh, last year, with deal volume hitting a record of 2,456 deals. Is that deals or companies? I don't know. Um, I'll, ask, I'll ask the audience in a minute. Uh, global VC investment reached over $52 billion for the six months, and that's very close to the annual record of $54 billion seen in 2018. Uh, lots and lots of money. Uh, Natasha, as an investment, uh, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a great time to be a fintech investor, and I don't think anyone's surprised. I mean, every week there seems to be a new report saying that you know, the record-breaking quarter, year, whatever for, for fintech. So yeah, it's great to see. Um, I think it's not surprising as well because there's just been increasing partnerships between banks and startups, for example. I mean, I think before we've often spoken about B2B sales being a bit like a reenactment of the myth of Sisyphus where you roll the stone up and when you get close to the top of the hill, it falls back down again. Um, and now you're seeing banks actually actively partnering with, with startups and, and consumers as well, putting their money into kind of new entrants. So it's really turbocharged the space. And I think investors are responding really positively to that. I'm loving how highbrow we've gone here. We've gone Greek mythology. Like usually it's like <laughs> 80s movie references, but you've, I feel like you've really brought the bar up there, Natasha. But uh, it's uh, it, it, it's fascinating though. There's, I mean, there's so there's so many different things happening. I mean, you don't want to talk don't want to talk up the bubble thing, but is there still enough slices of financial services broken that investors are, are still got good places to invest? I definitely think so. And I think the other interesting thing that came out of that headline was also the geographical component. So. You know, America, the, the fintech sweetheart, still leading, obviously, but the UK and Europe catching up quite quickly. And, you know, places like LATAM, Asia, also receiving huge amounts of funding. Africa, I'm hearing of funds in London across the globe, launching and raising new funds entirely focused on the African continent. So I think we're really only at the start of the fintech journey, which is super exciting. Yeah, uh, Sophie, w- w- one for you, I guess. Is it, uh, I suppose, given what's happened last year and the fact that we're still in a pandemic, and this is a global survey, so this you know covers not just the UK but everywhere. Is it surprising we sort of nearly hit that high, I guess, um, of, uh, of of from a VC perspective of fifty-four million dollars invested in in twenty eighteen into this sector, or you know, is it is this a natural consequence of almost the purses being held held a little bit last year and then sort of you know distributed wildly this year, given that things are slightly calming down, I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's there's two points to this. One is um, that I don't know if you remember, but the 2018 figure is a little bit misleading because we had that giant ant financial round, which was 14 billion. Oh, so that yes, sort of skewed right. the yeah, numbers yeah. in that in that round. So actually, if you take that out, we are looking at a quite nice trajectory going up. Um, and yeah, I think you know, as as investors, we were we were very much expecting to see this um, increase in in H1 2021. You know, when uh, when COVID hit, a lot of VC rounds were either delayed or pulled, and so a lot of smaller internal funding rounds were ha- were happening. And you also had the, of course, the government's future fund stepping in and supporting companies with smaller rounds, but enough to get. And everyone was like, "We just need to get to next year, then you can raise the next round in the next year." And so what we saw at the beginning of this year, and I know that Natasha. Uh, had the same thing is there we were inundated with companies going to market all having sort of delayed and kind of refocus and thought now now is the time to go out to market and so I'm not really surprised that we're seeing this big bump and and the kind of thing that happened alongside that is we're just seeing a real increase in valuations uh, given that the increased excitement in the in this sector but also a, a loss of kind of dry powder um, of VCs not being able to deploy last year and then really wanting to sort of make up the yeah. numbers this year so yeah i mean i um largest vc rounds this year robin hood 3.4 billion dollars new bank 1.5 billion Klarna, a couple of rounds of 1.9 billion it, it honestly feels every time i'm on the show there's another raise there was like yapoli and true and solda i think the last time i was on it uh cuda just raised this like all over the globe um I suppose one thing we did cover when Revolut raised a couple of weeks ago is we talked about um, valuations being potentially a bit frothy. Um, is that is that the case? I mean, you just said there that, you know, uh, potentially values might be overcooked a little bit. Um, do, do you think that that's uh, in general the right, uh, I suppose, the, the right um, uh, metaphor, I guess, or actually are we, you know, are the valuations only going to continue to grow? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one to predict, right? Valuations are definitely high. (laughs) They're a lot higher than when I started investing three years ago, and they are only going up. Uh, We're in a founder's market, a lot of capital um, searching for great companies, therefore founders can demand higher valuations. But that comes with a maturing um, of the industry as well. You know, we're seeing these large funding rounds. We're moving from, um, you know, some some pretty basic digitization on the front end to real um, products that are making a difference and getting in customers' hands and sort of, um, you know, changing the path in terms of different parts of financial services. So, you know, frothy is one word, but it could be that we're just sort of catching up to to where the industry is moving to. I don't know, Tash, if you think anything differently. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, it's been a year where fintechs have done well, where there's been a lot of money to deploy into those fintechs doing well. I think the counterpoint really is that there's been a lot of stats to show that kind of pre-seed funding has actually dropped. And so I think we're seeing a lot of money going into quite mature fintechs mm. and maybe actually the really early stage guys being slightly left behind in you know, a lot of my friends are, you know, first time founders looking to raise that first check and they're saying, Oh, I don't understand. You know, I hear you talking about these, on these podcasts about record breaking fintech years, but I can't seem to raise a first round. So I think, um, that's something we're thinking increasingly about as a fund is how to really kind of support, uh, you know, those early stage guys that aren't, are kind of being excluded a little bit from these huge rounds. That's interesting. Is that, is that because I guess your opinion and going back to what David said, you know, is, is there enough? 
is there enough left to disrupt, I guess? Or is there is there too many VCs and PEs already betting on too many horses, I guess? Because, I mean, we've seen um, investments in things like cybersecurity, crypto, which has gone absolutely bananas recently, reg tech, wealth tech, obviously neobanks, bread and butter, et cetera. Is, is, there, a, is there enough TAM, and when we talk about TAM, um, you know, total addressable market, is there enough of it to sustain even more investment into the future? Or do you think, you know, what you've just talked about is a consequence, actually, that people are getting a bit nervy? Yeah, I mean, I'm an early stage investor, so I'll be biased because otherwise I might as well just pack up my bags and, and go home, really. Um, oh, wow, I directed that at yeah, the wrong no, person. I, I, okay. I definitely think there's still a lot, lot more to do. And we spoke a little bit about geographies um, where there's huge amounts of stuff left to do huge, huge opportunities and also large markets. And large, I think, you know, lots of people listening to the show will, will have needs that aren't being catered to that, um, you know, I think present huge opportunities. I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the show, but things like, Creator banks or you know banks targeting niche segments of the population. I think there's still a lot to do. So yeah, still exciting times up ahead. I think. Yeah, and I think in terms of um, the areas, we've seen a lot of, of innovation in B two C. And um, as Tasha was saying, we're, we're now starting to see this sort of B two B movement going on. Um, and there's there's also kind of these evolution of those like fintech 1.0, which is um, maybe some of the kind of challenger banks and then you're seeing kind of innovation on top of those and so I think and also given sort of the COVID has disrupted and accelerated this digital innovation there's there's so much more to come it's going to be it's going to be super exciting. Andrew I wanted to bring you in as well because you guys raised 200 million dollars earlier this year Um, so you've contributed to the number so congratulations. (laughs) Um, uh, I I guess um, for you guys how how easy was it I know this isn't necessarily the question but how easy did you find the raise and and I guess um, you know were you sort of inundated with different offers and 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 whatever else like I I suppose a little bit conversely to what Natasha was saying from an early early stage investor point of view. Yeah I mean uh... Certainly, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say certainly the other side that, that, that the process was easy. Actually, I, I think there was a lot of diligence. There was a lot of effort put in, and I, I probably reflect on some of the comments that I think we're seeing a, a more discerning investor. I think the, the money's around for us is a good word, but I certainly we, we we went through quite a lot to go through the process. I would say I wouldn't say we were inundated, but we did have multiple offers. And we had choices to make, and that was a nice thing around, you know, the nature of the investors we wanted to work with, the overall construct, and what we were looking for for them, as well as what they were looking for from FITA. What type of relationship did they want to offer to us on an ongoing basis? And actually, that was a key part of our consideration. So I would say that we did see the choice out there, but I would also say the process was robust as we went through it as well. I wouldn't say there was a kind of flick and play type approach. Cool. Um David, I'll leave the last word on this one to you. To, uh, to you, I, I guess um, holistically across the industry, do, do you think that funding rounds are, are potentially getting too big? I guess. Um, I mean, only time will tell, really. I mean, can the to, to Sophie's point earlier on, can the companies really sort of uh, grow into the valuations that they're getting? Only time's really going to tell. You know, we've seen gigantic valuations put on things like Revolut for future uh, future revenues. You know. Uh, and they've got a good plan, but again, it's having the good ideas and executing them are, are pretty pretty different things, aren't they? Something I, I kind of worry about. I mean, is I mean, I'm not sure how I'd spend 200 million. Do you know what I mean? But actually, yeah. you're 500 million or whatever. So, so I think the, the I think the challenge is is particularly when you start seeing global hubs where you're seeing really heavily concentrated 
huge chunks of money, then actually everybody's viring, you know, really, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll sort of come on to this uh, a little bit a bit more with uh, Feedsai in terms of what you guys are going to kind of do with the money. But when you're looking at really concentrated hubs of, of fintech, people are vying for people. Like this is what this money predominantly goes on. And it's like engineering talent, product talent, uh, you know, design talent, salespeople, you know, and actually the the market almost fundamentally shifts. So I know, I mean, the UK market, like London market, engineering talent's like gold dust right now in terms of being able to get it. And I, I wonder if actually almost the deep concentration in a few hubs for uh, for fintech is actually going to have much more of a knock-on effect globally, you know, driven by the pandemic and everybody can work anywhere to, um, to many more hubs being created where, you know, potentially the work actually gets done because there just are so many engineers. There are so many uh, product, great product people yeah. uh, and everybody's vying for those right now. So it's um, to your point, Sophie, I mean, it's a, it's definitely a founder's market, but Actually, I, I think the the talent market is, is really where almost the the challenge will be because you know it's one thing getting the money, but if you can't spend it wisely, then um, what's the point? Yeah, if you're listening to this, get your kids to start coding Python. Yeah, <laughs> ASAP. And, uh, and, uh, that, <laughs> and at that point, I should remind everybody, Eleven FS is recruiting. Oh, David, uh, it's but, very uh, early. But, it's very early in the show for plugs, David. Very early. <laughs> 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 All right, look, uh, we, we, we just talked about how to spend two hundred million. Um, so, Andrew, I'm coming to you next. Um, this is the next story. <laughs> okay. um, um, I'm surprised you're not on a yacht somewhere. No. Uh, Feedsai acquires the uh, world's most advanced biometric platform uh, to create the world's largest financial intelligence network. Uh, so this was carried, again, all over the place, Global Newswire um, included. Following a $200 million investment round earlier this year, Feedsai announced the acquisition of the most advanced behavioral biometric platform, Revolock. Uh, the two companies combined create the world's largest AI-powered financial risk management platform with native integrative behavioral biometrics. I hope I'm doing this justice. Uh, the integrated platform enables financial institutions and merchants across the globe to detect and prevent financial crime before it occurs. And the combination of Feedseye and Revolock will create the world's largest financial intelligence network, or FIN, a vault of more than a trillion data points, sessions, and profiles of both good and bad actors. I heard like to recognizing a transaction if it's fraudulent or not, you guys have got like 150 different data points on each, which like blows my mind. We'll talk about that in a sec. Um, Andy, uh, I'm coming to you on this first, obviously, congratulations. Uh, can you tell us more about this? I guess like when the acquisition was penned, uh, was it, did you use the, the, the cash obviously from the investment round and then what you guys are planning to do uh, with the tie up? Yeah, so I, I guess from an acquisition aspect, we, we, we started looking at it seriously um, as the investor round became serious. So there was a little bit of overlap there in the sense of we were out looking at the market. But it was at that point we had high confidence in the investment. So it's pre-completion, but I guess momentum looked, looked good. Um, it, it, it was always a, a plan of ours to move into this area, this kind of behavioral biometrics device, uh, digital trust type area. Uh, ultimately, we were weighing up whether to adopt a kind of a build, buy, or, or acquire strategy. And, and yes, the investment round and the money around that enabled the opportunity to move quickly and to make an acquisition. We we realised that the roadmap, if you like, from a, a build perspective, was likely to be long. And I guess drawing on one of the points made earlier, actually, we we had some concerns around the ability to recruit the engineering talent, um, especially in the mobile space, actually, um, and therefore this. This just ticked a lot of boxes for us. It, it, it created that financial network. It creates a more compelling proposition. It gives us more control. 
And it, frankly, it speeds up our proposition both from a, a customer standpoint, but also from from a roadmap aspect. So yeah, that 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 was that was the thinking really. Yeah, your your CEO uh, Nuno came on the show back in March uh, following yeah. the initial raise. He said that fraud costs the global economy over five trillion. Um, is that is that which is which is mad? Is is that still true now, uh, or have we seen? I mean, that was only in March, so we're only a few months on from then. So 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 possibly, I don't know if you've got any updated figures or not. But it, but in, I guess in terms of that number, is it? Are you, do you believe it's going to grow as everyone moves to digital, and therefore as everyone moves to digital, as we've seen that wave over the pandemic, does that just therefore open up even more opportunity? I guess for you guys, because and again, I couldn't quite believe this when I read it. Apparently, twenty percent of the world's money already flows through you guys um, and you secure the bank accounts of one in every five people. That is mega. <laughs> that's not, I, that, yeah, that's where I'm leaving that. I'm not asking you a question. It's just that statement. That's it. <laughs> it's just mega. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, no, but I, I guess in terms of that fraud problem, uh, just going back to, is that, um, you know, do, do you believe that's going to grow and therefore your services will grow? Or do you actually think that there's sort of a tipping point where you can get in control of that problem and that, and that, Therefore, that value almost starts to come down. So, so when we look at it locally from our own own numbers, we're, we're seeing 160% year-on-year growth. Interestingly, some what you might call old-school fraud types are, are coming back. So phone fraud has grown sevenfold over the last 12 months, although – uh, I guess slightly reflecting on that another way, 90% of the fraud we're seeing now is online. So that definitely fits. That's definitely pandemic-driven. As consumers have moved online, so have fraudsters. Uh, if you look at it on a slightly kind of larger basis, um, I think cybersecurity ventures said that they've expected global cybercrime to grow year on year and will be nearer the, the, the 10 trillion kind of number by, by 2025. So there isn't anything to say that it isn't going to grow. What I would say is um, we, we stop a lot of that within Feedtire. So that isn't necessarily all losses. There is a huge amount in the industry prevented at source, but still measured. So whilst those numbers can be scary, there, there is a lot stopped at source. I think what digital does enable, though, is it enables multiple attempts for relatively low effort and for relatively low costs. So as a criminal, you know, you can use techniques, you can suddenly create scale in your own business. Maybe in a non-digital environment, you may maybe trying two or three frauds a day. In a digital environment, you might be trying three or four hundred a day. And, you know, therefore, the failure rate isn't isn't material for you in, in, in that sense. Yeah. So. One of the things we need to do is is get across everything that is going on, and actually, one of the things that the acquisition of Revolock does enable us to do is it is enables us to have a much richer data set and a much richer set of tools to fight online fraud as it starts to occur, um, and really all the way through that ecosystem. Um, th- there's loads of different areas I can go to this. I, I did want to pick up uh, and pick your brain just on one thing uh, before we move on to sort of AI and machine learning. Uh, one of the things is, is is around that 150 data points, which is um, you've got a what is called a segment of one profiling. Can, can you just talk a little bit about that? Because that's um, I, I think that's like super fascinating. I'd just love to know like hundred like <laughs> name them all. No, don't. But uh, I just wanted, <laughs> I just wanted to know like so how you've cut like. Uh, how the system comes up with that and what's the computing power, I guess, behind it in very, very non-technical terms because it's it's a super interesting statistic and yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Vito was built out of was this computing power. I'm not going to go back back to our history, but ultimately it it came out of the ability to create different um, predictions within space programs and they needed to happen quickly. And um, what what we've been able to do and what we've been able to differentiate ourselves in the market is is by using all, all the data all the time. And that's what our financial intelligence network ultimately now enables us to do with more data. So, so what the, the 150 plus are, I think we've arrived, like, we're going to get nearer 180, 190, if, if I'm honest, um, is it takes every single facet and really combines it with everything else. So I, I guess in non-technical terms, it thinks about what you're doing as a customer, but it might think about the device you're using. It might think about the location you're doing it in. It might think about the channel. It might think about who you're trying to pay. It might think about the nature of that payment. So if you then think about, all of those things on a many-to-one relationship, how you link all of those with each other. And then it might be different types of accounts, for example, your personal account, your your business account, um, whether it's a direct debit, whether it's an instant payment, whether it's to contactless, you know, whether it's standing audit. Suddenly, if you link all of those against each other every single time, that you can get to a, a very powerful segment of one profile. And that's ultimately what the segment of one profile represents. It represents all those threads of your interaction with everything else you're doing to create a unique representation of you as an individual in that context. So it really is your financial map in every single kind of potential way you could pull two pieces of data against each other. Cool. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Um, just opening up a little bit to the uh, to, to the panel, um, I wanted just to move a little bit to, I suppose, uh, AI, machine learning. There have been terms that have been banded around quite a lot in, I guess, uh, fintech and, and FS for, for a little bit. Um, how, uh, and Sophie and Natasha, actually, maybe to you guys, how many, I suppose, how hot is this segment, I guess, of fraud for you, like in terms of companies that come to you and say, actually, you know, we're using uh, a different way of, uh, you know, manipulating AI or manipulating machine learning to be able to fright this segment. Are you seeing a lot of companies coming through with this kind of background and, and, and how niche are the news cases, I guess, that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just such a massive problem for banks and financial institutions. It's kind of like playing whack-a-mole a bit. Um, so in the same way that, you know, you can use AI to find frauds, they're using AI to you know, get around your your systems detecting them. So it, it's really important to, um, I think, have a broad scope of tools. I mean, you talk a lot to banks and they say, you know, they're not just going with one provider, they'll go with several um, for things like AML, KYC data points. So um, banks are getting clued up and I think it's still a huge opportunity in the space. People that take different approaches um, will be looked at. I think the only comment I would have is that we are seeing a few players that will claim to, you know, bring down things like false um, positives down by 90%. And that's not necessarily what the regulation wants banks to do. Um, banks need to look at all the, you know, all the flags um, that are flagged by any computer system. So um, it's kind of this nuance between what you kind of hear from kind of very technical people building very impressive software and actually on the flip side, the regulation, what they're requiring banks and financial institutions to do. And it's really that kind of melting pot kind of that nexus between the two that will create a really interesting business so um yeah definitely something we're, we're looking quite closely at still yeah and, and there's a really interesting point so having kind of worked in this on the bank side you're right false positives often ends up as this kind of nexus but it just doesn't resonate and it doesn't mean anything once you kind of get outside of that department and, and outside of that industry i think 
one of the things we, we try and focus on, I mean, we talk about the, you know, the 5 trillion, the 10 trillion, but thankfully, even within organizations, the amount of people actually impacted by fraud, fraudulent attempts, or actually suffer fraud is still relatively low year on year. As an organization, you'd be disappointed if that wasn't a very low percentage, two, three, four percent. And one of the things I think is vital is to make sure that that 98% or that 96% on the other side can actually benefit by feeling secure in their digital transactions. Mm. You can actually make their journeys easier by having greater security. And I think one of the things we need to make sure we do is make security propositional in that sense. You need to have people to be protected. They need to have confidence in the channel as well. And actually having a high level of friction or lots of things telling you why you might be at risk isn't the way to go about that. So I think one of the things is making sure this works for customers, whatever their context, whether they are under a fraud attack, but whether they're, they're not as well. And I think that's far more powerful than, than false positive reduction, frankly. Yeah. And, and what I think about this whole industry in terms of red tech and you can harking back to the first story, um, if you read the KPMG report, red tech is one of the um, the sort of biggest sectors in this year so far to receive funding. And historically, that's not really been the case because the assumption was reg tech, quite slow moving, um, quite, disag- you know, like, uh, you know, solutions solving discrete things that maybe might not reach venture scale. Again, since COVID and this um, explosion of, of, of transactions going online and going digital, people have really realized the importance of, of RegTech and um, have started to invest heavily in it. And we're starting to see a lot more kind of speed and innovation um, that, that's now kind of really getting VCs excited about the space. Cool. Um, we're just going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors and we'll be back shortly. This podcast is sponsored by WaveMaker, the industry's most open, API-driven, low-code platform for hyper-accelerating embedded finance applications. WaveMaker delivers a rich, drag-and-drop visual studio that fintechs, brands, and financial institutions use for rapidly composing serious banking and financial services apps. Developers can easily consume APIs and build in an enterprise-grade environment, leverage custom pre-built components with APIs, logic, and UI, or even build out complete embedded finance journeys that your customers can extend or customize. The possibilities are endless. Visit www.wavemaker.com today. Customers expect more from their digital experience, and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. Welcome back to the show. Uh, the next news story, Circle Files to Become a Bank. Uh, this was carried on Altfy, again, has been carried by other um, publications as well. The FinTech uh, Circle filled, uh, filed, not filled, uh, its banking license application with the SEC last week, revealing its intentions to become a full reserve national commercial bank. Circle will not lend out its customers' deposits. Rather, all customer deposits will be backed by USDC, which is their proprietary stablecoin, and will be able to be withdrawn at any time. Uh, They believe that USDC, uh, or USD coin as it's known, uh, will soon grow into the hundreds of millions of dollars in circulation. I think it's about 30 at the moment. Um, We believe uh, that 
the full, this is a quote, we believe that the full reserve banking built on uh, digital currency technology can lead to not just a radically more efficient, but also a safer, more resilient financial system. Uh, and that was uh, Circle's CEO and co-founder, Jeremy Allier. Um, Oh, man, so much to get into here. I don't think we've got enough time, but let's give it a go. Um, Circle has sort of been all over the place. Like, they started with peer-to-peer. -peer, uh, they went to payments provider. Now they're, like, super-duper into the crypto, you know, stablecoin arena, which is just, like, there's so much money going around there at the moment. It's incredible. Um, I guess the, the first question, I'll open it up to the panel. Like, uh, why would Circle want a banking, a federal banking license? I think the first thing that I find interesting um, is that, if you make a lot of money in the crypto sphere, it's actually quite hard to put it back into the traditional financial system. So if you're kind of a crypto billionaire, and I've met a few over the last few years, um, you're actually, that's just where you stay. Um, and lots of private high net worth banks, private banks won't actually accept your money for regulatory kind of fears and, and for KYC reasons. So I think the first thing is there is this kind of niche and gap to be filled with having a full banking license that can accept all sorts of digital wealth. Um, and then the second point is, um, I think it very much speaks and it speaks to its name. We're coming full circle here to the birth of cryptocurrencies, which is in you know, 2008 after the recession, people lost full faith in the financial system. And maybe this is quite, um, timely, quite an opportune way for what they think might be a, an upcoming recession or perhaps feeding into people's fears that there might be one on the horizon. Um, and saying, okay, well, if you put your money here, it's 100% backed and it's not being lent out. And I definitely have, you know, memories of people queuing up, trying to desperately withdraw money from, from banks in, you know, 2000, the late 2000s. So, um, I do think it's quite a clever move and, um, I'm actually quite excited to see, um, what they build with this. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, uh, uh, the, the concept of a stable coin, uh, to move money around in theory, uh, in a in a cheaper way and and certainly in a in a faster way uh if you think about international payments as the most ultimate use case for this it sort of it it definitely sort of ticks off a lot of the pain points that that the customers find when sending a payment abroad especially to sort of the more uh, far reaches of the world um the, the the question for me would be how many stable coins can there possibly be because so i know there's like four or five like binance have got one paxos have got one they've both been on um well paxos certainly has been on uh, blockchain insider recently tether i think is the biggest one at the moment which is now under some form of criminal investigation not for current practices but for practices that go back uh, many many years um this one's big i see this as a scale play uh literally just to you know bring in more money if you like across a variety of banking products to then build usdc uh, it, it, do you guys feel the same or is, is there another angle to this I know, Sophie, one for you, maybe. Yeah, I, I think so. If you, um, the CEO uh, wrote a blog post about this filing, um, and if you look about, if you look at it, it's it's what they're really saying is that we work really, really hard with the regulators, um, with all the notable bodies to really ensure that we're in a good place and that this is, um, you know, going to be a, a legitimate and a long term standing. And, and then they have a big go at you know all of the regulation that I'm sure everyone's read about in the news recently. Um, and so it's almost kind of a, a uh, legitimization play and uh, we're seeing a lot of that in, across the cryptocurrency industry where um you know like we're invested in a company called kaiko it does um crypto data um initially they were selling to crypto hedge funds now they're selling to like the big hedge funds and the banks because we're seeing this move from um you know their own kind of crypto sort of world to into the mainstream um so i think there's, there's something interesting there i have a, a question i don't know if it's stupid how are they going to make money if they're not lending? 
Uh, well, I, I think this is m my point. I think it's a scale play to increase the circulation and the value of the cu underlying currency. Um, because that, that, that for me is what, you know, whenever I read anything from Circle and, and, and generally listen or, or hear anything from, from the other um, stable, you know, the other companies creating stable, that seems to be the, the, the number one thing is just to get the value of that currency up as much as possibly can and into more and more wallets around the world. And the integration into those wallets is a lot easier to integrate, in theory, this type of asset than it is to actually integrate, um, you know, an underlying card mechanism and then with all the, you know, rules and regulations about what you can and can't do and, and settlement and things of that nature. That's where my mind goes. I don't know, uh, David, Andrew, if you've got a thought on that. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, I think I agree with what Tasha was saying a minute ago in terms of like almost legitimization of it. Uh, this is a really bad analogy. So, and I don't, I don't mean it about circle, but like, you know, Mexican drug cartels had a lot of money. They struggled to get it into the system. Do you know what I mean? Like actually by becoming a bank, do they legitimize some of their KYC process, therefore legitimize the sources of funds in a little bit better way? Therefore, actually, does the whole operation become a lot more legitimate in terms of actually what they're trying to create with a, you know, a USD coin? I think there's something in that, you know. Um, so, but please don't quote, please don't quote me out of reference, anybody listening <laughs> to this in that sense. Um, but, but the logic makes sense, doesn't it? And, yeah. and I think Sophie picked up on this as well, is that I think a lot of people, myself included, are really waiting to see the outcome of that, that application because it's a filing, it's not a successful one. Um, and so I think we're going to see exactly how the SEC comes, falls on this and what sort of practices it's going to ask Circle to adopt. And I think that will be really um, interesting to see. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we're seeing big tech companies stay away from having licenses because of the knock-on, you know, the ripple effects that that has with all of the other operations from a uh, from a, a reach of the regulator to, to touch upon. But actually, if they if they really do, you know, if they have a full banking license, the the sort of ramifications of that for all of the different other all of the other operations is is going to be really really interesting, and isn't it as well? I, I didn't see on on the license, Adam. Did you what? what states they're applying is this a is this a national charter that they're looking for yeah they're going for federal charter which is why for me i just think this is a, a i wouldn't say it's a pr play because i think they'll, they will go for it but i mean i think just stating the intention in the news that we want to go for a federal charter is kind of like it makes people sit up and think all oh, these guys actually are, are, are seriously legit um and uh, you know i think from uh from that perspective i mean there's there are various ways you can get licensed if you are um, creating stable coins in crypto at the moment. And I think it's the, is it, and I might be uh, butchering this name, but the Office of the Control of the Currency in the States. Is that the right? Yeah, OCC, body? yeah. Um, they issued some crypto-friendly licenses, but then they've gone back on it uh, quite recently. So I think the, um, I think for me, it's a, it's a step to make it legitimate in, in people's minds. And I think that, that that's the key. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, there's a big enough market for this just within the crypto crazies to kind of make this a thing. But actually, at the point where at the point where um, cryptocurrency and currency is reasonably irrelevant in the way that people who you know subscribe to the sort of Bitcoin religion as, then you know, actually, if this is something that can allow you to spend on a day to day basis or get money in and out on a day to day basis, then I mean, it'd be fascinating to see, won't it? Yeah, well, uh, Andy, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this before we uh, before we leave this one. Uh, I guess from your perspective and coming at it from a fraud perspective as well, um, there's been a 
you can't really have a conversation at the moment, especially potentially with the layperson around cryptocurrency, stable coins, that movement of money, um, without mention of fraud and money laundering. And we saw, you know, uh, one of the uh, exchanges got hacked this week for some total of 600 million. Um, from your perspective, are you guys being drawn into that world at all at the moment? Or, you know, is that something you're keeping an eye on right now in terms of uh, the adaptation of your product to, to that sphere? Yeah, so, so I think kind of two things for us in play. We are being drawn into that. We're seeing um legitimate requests from our customers now to either add this you know existing customers who want to add this on or new customers come in with with this as as part of a, a joint proposition we're not talking to anybody who's crypto only what we're seeing is they tend to have existing payment rails or existing products and they know they want to adapt them for crypto so that that's definitely out there but i, I would say the big thing for us right now being completely honest is we're kind of watching the regulatory back and forth and that's that's probably of most interest to us because I think how this gets regulated now is probably not how this will get regulated in one, two, three years as well. So that regulatory evolution, I mean, if you look at how AML generally has evolved in terms of regulatory evolution over the last 10 years, it's completely different now to the way it was. And I think crypto is going to go on that journey. So we're watching the regulation landscape as well as kind of listening to clients who are, I would say, kind of just really dipping their toe in the water around this. Yeah, fair enough. Um, cool. All right, let's move to the next one. Uh, meet uh, XPO. Um, oh, this is interesting. It's kind of a quasi story, but it's an interesting topic. Um, the fintech startup building a better bank for creators. So this was an article that was in uh, Forbes. Uh, and it's around uh, the creative media or influencer niche is now a 13.8 billion industry uh, projected to grow at more than 35% per year over the next three years. Uh, in spite of this growth, many traditional institutions struggle to understand and work with these creators, especially banking. Uh, like regular freelancers, influencers face uh, irregular paychecks and often forced to chase less invoices from companies, uh, marketing departments and payroll uh, departments. Uh, a recently launched startup that has noticed this problem firsthand and is building a bank for creators is XPO and the app offers a speedy invoice financing solution that allows users to get paid within 24 hours of completing a job. Uh, launched last week it's set to onboard thousands of British content creators and paid out 20k in its first two days uh, of going live. Um, that's pretty impressive. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think from my perspective, um, we're, we're relatively close to this world at the moment. Um, like just super interesting. Um, I suppose we often talk about building banks for niches and the fact that technology has lowered the cost to, to build, if you like, so that unique economics make it almost, uh, I don't say profitable, but certainly uh, not as costly to be able to serve, let's say, the niche of landlords and, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, whatever it might be, you know, environmentalists. It could be anything. And, and this is another one, creators, you know, actually you've got um, – how, how big a um, – I suppose, uh, an opportunity is this? And, and is this the beginning of a trend that you can see across different types of industries who have sort of sub-economies which are supporting them? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I really like the guys from XPO, a really young, ambitious team um, and great kind of product founder fit. They are all ex-influencers themselves. So they felt this pain point firsthand. I think the first thing to note is it's not quite a bank yet. It's really an invoice factoring product um, and that's really addressing that particular need of that particular group. And that's why I think they'll do incredibly well at launch. 
And that's really going to be a wedge for them to start building out things like, you know, a lot of, um, you know, creators or kind of the hustle economy, as I also like to call it, don't actually know that, for example, their tax liabilities. So then that's something else they're thinking about is kind of helping, um, these creators understand their obligations. And then on top of that, being able to build, you know, a huge financial picture of these people. And on top of that, you know, more and more products. So it's really kind of the start of the creator bank journey for them. Um, and I think, as a result, it, it is really responding to that particular need. I think, as you said, there's been a few um, kind of banks for the niche that have been created where actually it's just kind of a, a, another product. So you're thinking about environmental banks. You know, is it just a, an ESG savings product that you're offering that a traditional bank could offer and doesn't actually have much defensibility? Or are you creating a community? Are you creating really like a very defensible product that is you know cost effective, great customer service and and very much hitting kind of a pain point. And those three things need to be fulfilled for a niche bank to have legs in my eyes. And I think um, this very much has like all the ingredients for it. So yeah, um, very excited. It's super cool. And in, in the US, um, I think the uh, when you talk about invoice factoring, it's it's almost a worse problem than it is here because the terms, I think, are net 90 days on, on majority, let alone net 30. Um, and I know there's startups, uh, I think Willa actually started in Europe and uh, going into the States, Archie, who I know Dylan relatively well. So shout out to Dylan from Archie, uh, the CEO there, and Carrot Finance have all popped up to streamline freelancers' payments. Um, I, I, I guess, uh, David, maybe may coming to you, is this, um, it's a new battleground for VCs, etc. Is this a problem, not just for influencers, but is this just the whole branch of freelancers, I guess, because um, it's ultimately a problem with, you know, m- m- being paid, ultimately. Yeah, I, th- I think there's definitely something. And then, as you say, in the US, it's a, it's slightly more of a problem, isn't it, in terms of kind of getting money through the system and sort of getting it out of the other end. I mean, the, the other thing, I just worry about this one, if I'm honest with you. I see, I, see the, I see the logic, but, like, most influencers get paid, like, jack shit, don't they? You know, like, actually, not like true. A, a, oh, my God, I wish it was. They said the average customer had five thousand pounds of like invoices a, a month. So, so yeah, so, so, so it's interesting. There's, the, the, we actually covered this on a recent show. There's different levels. There's macro, micro, mid tier. Yeah, um, I've just not done them in a chronological order, but anyway. Um, but uh, there is the long tail of those who have got maybe about ten thousand followers across platforms who are struggling to monetize or can monetize, but really slowly. But anything upwards from that, and actually, you know, if you've got a you know hardcore amount of you know. A, only a small amount of followership who actually subscribe to and potentially pay you money uh, on a specific basis, or if you're into like the affiliate world and you're actually just using an affiliate, you can actually, you know, the chances of making, you know, a few thousand pounds dollars every month is actually quite high. Um, And we've seen that across some of the customer research that we've recently been doing. But you are right to say, David, that there is a enormous long tail and there's a lot of people who want to get into it. But it's impact, isn't it? And actually, if you look at, I mean, a million views on YouTube is worth like four thousand pounds. Do you know what I mean? It's like the the effort to impact to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you tell me different, I'll quit eleven FS right now. I've got like fifty thousand followers on Twitter. Like, if, it, if I if I if I can go and just do that, and that will pay my mortgage, like fuck all this 11FS stuff. That seems like a lot of hard work, you know. So, um, so just to say, I think I kind of agree in terms of like the impact to time. I can't see people wanting to be influencers for their whole lives. That's more my fear is, you know, you might want to do it for a year or two when you're a student, you've got some more time on your hands or, you know, a few years after that. But I, I don't know that the industry's not been around long enough to know whether people are going to be long term influencers. And yeah, you know. Well, and, ev- and even what that means, like, do you know what I mean? Because I, I kind of feel and this is like um, 
Adam, you've got me on my like grumpy old man thing again. Like it's like, do you know what I mean? It's like, what does that even mean? Do you know what I mean? Like, because I I really think I'm I'm a big believer in media. Don't get me wrong. Like uh like in fact, hey, like there's a podcast we're on that we're doing because I believe in it so much. You know what I mean? But but I I think it's like it's got to be a thing for a reason, and I'm not sure. What are you influencing? Are you influencing? I mean, Mumsnet used to be brilliant for influencing by decisions of like a huge population of people. I mean, uh, you know, like and and uh, you know, Casey Neistat used to do amazing videos and get loads of people to kind of engage with. Diff- so, so I I kind of get it as a thing, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's a job in itself. You know, actually, yeah. it needs to be a thing to do something else rather than the thing in itself. And I think the I think the hard thing, I mean, my kids are like obsessed with like Mr. Beast and like all different types of people that are kind of out there. In fact, I, I mean, I literally tweeted it. It's like the minute he got into doing stuff with fintech, my kids were like, when are you going to meet Mr. Beast? And it's like, yeah, that's weird. Like, that's not going to happen. But I, I sort of feel like we're in this weird thing where kids think they can become influencers and that's like a real job. Yeah. Because, I, but but my challenge is, is it's like, it's like the 1% who do amazing at this thing. And then everybody else is making vlogs that do nothing, you know? Yeah. And it's like, actually, that reality, and that's why I worry about how big is the, the market for this? Yes, there's a lot of money that's in it potentially for the people on the extreme end of it. But if you're at the extreme end of it, you're banking with like some Swiss banker who's looking out to where all the money's going rather than worrying about two or three grand coming from a, you know, 50,000 views on YouTube type thing. So yeah. um, it's going to be interesting. Is there a, I'm all for hyper niches, but I think this one's so niche and so um, imbalanced from a frequency of the the revenue perspective that I, I really think they'll struggle to grow. But hey, guys, prove me wrong. Oh, there you go. The challenge has been laid down. Uh, Sophie, just to get your thoughts on it, uh, if there's anything you wanted to add. Yeah, I think... Um I think influencer is a little bit of a misleading word. And I think creator is probably a better one. And I think that the reason why it's so uh, polarized at the moment is because we don't have this infrastructure in place to support people trying to get into it. And and it may become an industry of its own where, okay, you, you know, there's this huge thing about financial literacy at the moment. At the moment, where do we, we go to like Netflix to watch our content? We might go to wherever. Whereas if you have these kind of, specific areas where it's like very specialized content that people can kind of create around say like investing stocks financial products and then you can start to work with different people like i was chatting to this company who are uh, building a investment platform that's working with creators to build content and then you can also invest off it so i i think if we build an infrastructure around this area it could be really interesting um but yeah i guess only time will tell. Um, Wait, Adam, I've, I've just changed my tune on this one. I just Googled it. Apparently, Twitter Twitter basically determine after 20,000 followers on Twitter, you're basically an influencer. So, like, I, t- I changed my tune. Like, <laughs> I think influencers are really important. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you're legally, you're legally an influencer. Legally. Yeah, I'm off to apply for a bank account it's, it's, and it's, see what happens. It's, it's time to put ads in your Twitter feed, David. That's what you need to do <laughs> That's now. That's what it is. what it is, yeah. Um, uh, Andrew, I, Andy, I feel like I'm asking you the same question after every story because every story is relatively different, but how are we going to tackle fraud on that? No, I'm joking. Um, I just, 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 your thoughts on this one, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever used uh, partnerships with influencers to you know, distribute marketing, et cetera. I'll be interested to get your thoughts. No, I don't think it can come on influence. I think the, 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 the niche market generally is is one 
um, to watch. I mean, I think I noticed that it's, um, investors are similar to those with, with Monzo or something like that. Yes. I think ultimately, what, what I can't quite decide is whether these are products and kind of companies in their own right or whether ultimately if they see success, actually we'll see some of the more traditional financial organizations put this as a product and put this as something that exists over so I worry actually the more successful this comes, the more it get more may almost get swept back into you know a, a slightly larger financial entity because of that mm. success. So yeah. I worry almost the success may actually kill kill the products longer term and yeah that's interesting yeah i i I think about what the future of marketing departments is for it but um anyway uh we'll we'll move on to the next story but before i do producer laura tells me it's not controller it's comptroller so i was right that's why i didn't know it's actually the off uh the office of the comptroller of the currency (laughs) there you go what's a comptroller what's a comptroller (laughs) i I don't know (laughs) i have no idea i thought i made a spelling mistake uh but anyway, I think apparently uh, Laura says it's the same thing. It's just a silly word. <laughs> anyway, I'm Googling uh, it. let's move on um, to an answer machine plug. Uh, so this is uh, part of the show where we wanted to let you know what we're planning, or we are planning, sorry, an AMA. So that's an Ask Us Anything episode of Fintech Insider. Call the brand new Fintech Insider hotline on 0208 050 0611. Uh, that's 0208-050-0611. Uh, leave your name and we'll shout you out and play your message on that AMA show. Um, alternatively, feel free to tweet us or send us a voice note to podcasts at 11fs.com with your questions, or you can email us if you don't want to record yourself. Uh, I can't wait to hear what people have got to say uh, and the questions they got to sign in. Uh, I actually generally thought that was going to be uh, like a financial news story. That's why I sort of entered it. And I was like, oh, no, that's not. Uh, but that's really cool. David, I'm assuming you're doing it. Um, wh- what are you expecting? Uh, I mean, I, I, from what I hear, there's some quite risque questions that have come in that are hilarious. And we will answer them all. It's going to oh, turn word. into almost a late night love fintech insider. But we'll see what happens. I think I might, I might um, send something in. Um, I, haven't, nice. I haven't read out a phone number on a podcast for... It's well, since I've been doing this, like that's like that's awesome. You're gonna do it in like a jingle, <laughs> it does it? it, it, it oh, seven, yeah, like yeah, live and kicking it, jingles. Hey, retro. Yeah. It, it feels very sort of radio DJ vibe, doesn't it? You know what I mean? <laughs> but it? uh, but uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun, I think. Cool, looking forward to that one. Um, let's move on to the stories we didn't have uh, time to cover. So, um, this is where we ra- uh, very, very quickly wrap up some of the stuff that obviously we, we, we can't cover in full detail. Uh, David, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. So Aviva and Nationwide joined 2.5 million round in first-time buyer's mortgage broker Tembo. Uh, The capital will be used to drive the expansion of Tembo's offering, which aims to address the poverty premium and help prospect owners buy their first property sooner. Uh, Launched in June, Tembo's products enable first-time buyers to lean on loved ones to help them climb into the property ladder. Uh, Tembo co-founder and CEO Richard Danner comments, we're on a mission to help turn the tide on generational wealth gap by helping families work together to give first-time buyers a fast, affordable way to increase their deposits. I mean, buying houses sucks. So anything that anybody can do to help first-time buyers really understand that process and get on that ladder quicker, all good. Yeah, I'll amen to that. Uh, Next story, uh, Atom Bank pulls in 
uh, its first ever monthly profit. So this is uh, this was on Finextra. Uh, Atom Bank has reported a monthly profit for the uh, business showing steady growth. Uh, the new milestone was revealed in the bank's quarterly interim results to end of June. Uh, the figures show Atom exceeding 3 billion in residential mortgage completions and attracting 1 billion in deposits into its recently launched instant saver accounts, raising the total deposit base to around 2.5 billion. Uh, the government's coronavirus support scheme for business also provided a boost to uh, interest income with 9.8 million uh, generated from 759 million uh, or from a sorry 759 million loan book. Uh, Mark Mullen who's the CEO said it's been an outstanding quarter for Atom. We're determined to accelerate f- uh, further and faster both this year and next as we continue our journey towards sustainable profitability and IPO. Um, big shout out to the Atom guys. They they make regular appearances on here uh, and I know they've been battling this for a while. Uh, it does show you know it's a savings uh, it's a deposits and loans but I mean that's basically the bank and uh, you know you work at it and it will become profitable and they will grow and grow. So many, many congratulations to them. Very true. Uh, next up, we had uh, a story that was over on TechCrunch, which is Nubank co-founder leads $45 million investment in Indian neobank Jupiter. So Jupiter has raised $45 million in a new financing round, a Series B co-led by Brazilian-based Nubank. Um, so the, the new round uh, values the two-year-old Indian startup, which only actually launched its platform in June uh, and is attempting to bring delight to the banking experience at over 300 Hundred million dollars. Uh, we believe that the bank account should be a smart account where it gives you insights, shared personalized tips and guides, and how really helps you attaining some financial discipline. Said Gupta, who is uh, the co-founder over at uh, also Citrus Pay and a bunch of other stuff that they did as well. I mean, this is interesting, isn't it? I mean, for something that only just launched in June. I mean, the fact that they're acquiring customers so quickly and valuation so quickly. I mean. India is a huge market, so if there's a uh, scale play anywhere that to enter into a market and really, really solve a, an unmet need, it's uh, it's going to be there, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, the battleground where East meets West. Right, let's move on uh, and bring everyone back for the final story. Uh, and this was that a woman has been left on hold for seven hours by HSBC uh, after trying to report fraud. Um why hang on for seven hours? Anyway, uh, a woman from Devon who lost three thousand nine. Oh, that's maybe why. Who lost three thousand nine hundred pounds after fraudsters posed uh, as her bank spent a total of seven hours on hold at HSBC, racking up a fifty pound phone bill uh, as she tried to report the fraud. The process took so long that Julie's landline provider temporarily cut her off. Uh, it was four days until HSBC contacted her after she'd been scammed to tell her that she would be refunded. Uh, the figures come amid growing concerns over recovery fraud, where victims are trying. Are scammed again by fraudsters pretending to help them recoup their losses. God, caught kicking you when you're down. Uh, this type of fraud has seen a 39% increase since last year, with victims losing 14,400 on average. Whoa, I mean, I was half approaching that as a joke, but that's actually very real. Um, I, from you, got Andy. I'll start with you on this one again. It's got a fraud connotation to it, and you're my go-to guy. Uh, what, what, what's, what's your thoughts on this? It's just horrible in, in in every single way, isn't it? I mean, this is. This is everything going wrong at, at the same time. We, we are unfortunately seeing uh, a market, if you like, from the fraudsters. Of, they know people have got money because they know the refund process and they know the speeds. The regulations are actually good. They force a refund in a certain period of time. Four days would actually warrant um, a regulatory investigation. The standard is, is 24 hours. Unfortunately, that means the fraudster knows that the money will be there in 24 hours and and if they've had success why not go and have success again it's a, yeah. a target rich environment so there is a real very real threat here and certainly we 
everybody in the industry needs to do more to help customers not only protect themselves in the first place, but protect that, if you like, that that refill or, or, or that, that repetition fraud. And that, yeah, that's it's very nasty. And, and in terms of, unfortunately, we've seen this kind of move into different channels. And I think sometimes now multi-channel um, environments are, are creating some confusion. And sometimes people can be left on the, the phone for a long period of time because maybe other channels like digital and web chat are, are being worked, for example. And I think sometimes that, that we can view that as beneficial, but sometimes that causes confusion. Yeah, I mean, it is... Um... I mean, we could talk about being held on the phone for seven hours by HSBC, which is erroneous in, in, in itself. But it is a bit of a vicious cycle, isn't it? Because if the fraudsters know that the customer's protected to the point where they're definitely going to be refunded, then they just, you know, to your point, like law of averages says that the more they do, the more they might make. Uh, and ultimately, you know, after you know a week of pain, if you like, no one probably, you know, everything will calm down and settle down. And, and obviously, you know, the banks will just take this as a as a known risk and just write it off on their balance sheets. So it is kind of a self, you know, deprivating cycle almost. It's like, it, yeah. I, any, anyone else got thoughts on this one? I think I admire her perseverance, firstly. Um, after 30 yeah. minutes, I would have hung up. Um, but it's, it speaks to the fact that I think, you know, it, it feels like a lot of stuff is going online, as you said, um, Andy. And, and that means that Things like phone lines, typically available for people who need phone rather than internet, which is, can be quite vulnerable people, um, are being underfunded, perhaps. That's what this story kind of spoke to me, thinking specifically about my grandparents um, who only talk on the phone. So it made me quite sad. But um, yeah, I've got to say, I, I do also really admire her perseverance to, to hang on in there for seven hours because that is a long period of time. <laughs> I think um, I think even with digitally native, though, I think it's um, I think like I, you know, health and wealth, they're the two things that you would ring for. Do you know what I mean? Like my um, my worst experience, literally, I just pulled it up in front uh, to, to find it. So for everybody who's uh, watching this right now. So two, two hours and one minute, I waited to talk to my doctor. But I thought I was dying. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I would do that. Yeah. But on the wealth side of it, it's like, you know, she's lost all that money, so she's persevering with it. But but it's 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 crazy, isn't it? You know, in, in today's age, actually having better ways of managing people's expectations and trust levels and all of those things. Like, I'd be really interested to talk to her and be like, are you going to be a HSBC customer in like six months' time when this is resolved? Because almost if um, with a brand, when that trust has been, you know, so eroded and producer Laura has just said, the woman was so dis disappointed with the service she received from HSBC after the event that she then switched banks. See, it's these moments of truth yeah. that if you let people down, that that trust is never is never really recouped is it at that stage so um fascinating to see what happens it is quite sad like you say about the these types of um scams and they're gonna be increasing we actually had um so Simon Taylor, now that we're in the office, I get to like eavesdrop on what everybody else is up to, basically. So Simon Taylor in the office had a call from um, NatWest this week. And basically they said, hi, it's NatWest. Uh, we'd like to talk to you about such and such. And he was like, prove it, you know, like prove your NatWest to me. And they were like, uh, like, well, we've got this email on file. I can send any of that. And it's like, it's interesting whether... As customers get more and more savvy, 
like, do we need, like, 2FA for the banks to get in touch with us as much as us for yeah. getting access to them? And how do they really prove that it is them when they talk to us? Because, I mean, I've, I roughly get 17,000 emails, a, a text messages a day from, like, things that I've signed up to or DHL, that, have, yeah. you know, and almost like um, they say marketers break everything, but I think fraudsters are probably up there as well. Yeah, I get so many from Amazon, apparently, you know, apparently I've got, like, 10 deliveries a day, which is just isn't the case um uh, sophie l- last word on this one from you before we wrap up i guess i really hope it was good hold music <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't and it, and it wasn't for me at the doctors either it was two hours of a 30 second clip of hold music which drove me crazy like, it's never but, good uh, the whole, the whole point, yeah. music is never good, <laughs> good um you get the three seconds between when it plays again where you think oh i'm finally <laughs> there i did I'm back the, the only yeah. one I can, and i actually remember this there was one i don't know what the company was but they did uh, classical music soundtracks and i was on for about 20 minutes and they went through about four or five that's quite nice um, but anyway, I mean, I think I think on the doctors it was like some panpipe shit that just was like it was a loop, you know, and it was just like oh, it that it was that um, ever increasing crescendo. Do you know what I mean? Like you, I was waiting for like a, a bass beat drop that just yeah. never came. And, it was, uh, and at it was the end of it, you don't get the phone call; you just get a repeat. It's great. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That 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 wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you all so much for that. That was really really good. Enjoyed that one. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, Andy, to start us off? Uh, Feedside.com. Cool. Uh, Natasha? Uh, yeah, you can hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter. Nice. Uh, Sophie? Yeah, uh, LinkedIn or Twitter, especially if you're in Helsinki and want to have a coffee or a cinnamon bun, let me know. Nice. Uh, and David? I mean, now that I know I'm an influencer on Twitter, just like influencing on Twitter, you know, and stuff. <laughs> just so, chilling yeah, out on Twitter, making yeah, money. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, and as for me, uh, you can, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, LinkedIn, Twitter, and 11fs.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, and don't forget to hit up the answer machine uh, to ask us your questions. Otherwise, uh, join the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Uh, thanks very much for this week and goodbye.